Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Well, we are deep into the study of the book of Daniel, and today we continue our study in the ninth chapter of Daniel and look carefully at the 25th verse of this chapter. Class teacher Doug Brady is digging deep into this chapter, which contains that prayer that Daniel raises of confession to God. This contains important prophecies which we need to understand even here in the 21st century. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning in the LaVorne Hall located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We meet at 9.15 a.m. We invite you to visit our class if you're in the area. Oh, Doug is at the podium now, ready to begin the lessons, so let's find a seat among the 125 class members and open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. We are in a study of the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel. We're in the last portions of it, chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. Some of you are saying, when are we going to ever get to 10 and leave 9 behind? And my answer to that is, not anytime soon. Not any, we're in verse, really, verse 25 today. We're going to see some things that, uh, if those of you have never heard this before, you may be rather amazed. But I want you to see uh, how things are going. Now, I have told you, if you don't do it the right way, this prophecy is complex. So we're doing it step by step by step. And we are, are going through it, and there's going to be a number of steps we're going to have to look at, and we've looked at four so far, so let's look at those again. Step number one is this prophecy is only about the Jewish people, Jerusalem and the temple. It's not about the church. It has effects on the church. It's not talking about the church. Daniel doesn't even know what the church is. He's never heard of it nor did anyone else who wrote anything in the Old Testament. Step two is the prophetic timeline set out by Daniel extends for 490 years. 490 years, that's 176,400 days. Now, some of you say, why is it important to know how many days? Well, that's coming. Step three that we've looked at is the length of a prophetic judgmental or Jewish years, 360 days, 360 days, each of them. And step four, God will accomplish six purposes, our plans during the 490 years that are laid out in Daniel 9:24 during that 490 year period of time. Now we're going to go today to step five and we may even get to step six, but before we begin, let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Father, I thank you so much for the time that we could spend here today and for opening this book for us and preserving prophecy of Daniel, including it in your canon of the scriptures. 
there's so much now we can understand about what's going to happen in the future because we have this, this wonderful book. I pray, Father, you'll help me to make things appear clear and easily understood today as we go through this prophecy. I pray that you will help me to communicate in a way that your Holy Spirit can use in bringing insight with understanding to us. Pray that you'll keep the distractions from the room and that we will be able to understand what it is that you want. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, step five, the countdown for the final 490 years granted to Israel and Jerusalem begins with the decree of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. If you have a period of time, what's the first thing you want to know about that period of time? When does it start? What's going to be the next thing you're going to want to know? When does it end? It's not as important to know when it ends in a normal period because it's going to end when it ends. But you got to know when it starts, because if you don't know when it starts, you don't know when it ends, right? So today we're going to start right there, and we're going to see. I want you to look in Daniel 9.25, where it says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and tell Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now, we've come to understand that that word weeks is the Hebrew word shavua and it just means a set of seven. And here, in our context, we're talking about years. So, that would be seven weeks, would be 49 years. And then 62 weeks, I believe, would be 434 years. And these are two periods of time, and it appears from the language that they are back-to-back, back-to-back. Now, I want you to think about this a second. Look at this next slide. That's stopwatch. Can you use that stopwatch to tell you what time it is? No. We need to understand what a stopwatch is. And when we're doing that, we probably ought to ask somebody who's very familiar with stopwatches. So I'm going to ask Cindy to help us with this, if she would. Some of you don't know, the most important athletic events or or type of athletics that uses a stopwatch is track and track and field. Well, Cindy ran the half mile for the University of Georgia, and that's no slouch program in the SEC. Now, Cindy, if you have that stopwatch on zero and you push that top button, what will happen? It'll start. Now, if you push that button a second time, what does it do? It stops. But does it stop and go back to zero or does it stop right where it is? Right where it is. is. Now, if you were to push it again, what would it do? Start again. This is a perfect example of what God has given us. He has given us a stopwatch just like this. Do you notice on this stopwatch, what's this measuring? 77s. And you push that first button when the appropriate time is, and God's going to push that button, and it's going to start keeping time. And it's going to go first to 49 years. Then it's going to add another 434 years. And then he's going to take his thumb 
and push it again, and it's going to stop. And if you notice that particular stopwatch, what's it stopped on? 69 years. Because 69 weeks. One more week to go, and that's where we are right now. One of the questions we're going to try and ask, when is he going to push that button again? I hope. (laughs) I know, but some of you who are listening to this lesson wish he would hope, push it real quick. But the fact is, we need to see this. Now, when does it start to, to, to run? Well, it should be very clear from this verse 25 that from the issuing of the decree. Now, the problem is, first of all, this word decree is the Hebrew word debar. It's a rather standard word. It really means to speak or to state or to utter something. But when it's a king who's doing it, it tends to be considered a decree or a grant. Now, there are a number of grants or decrees set out by these kings of Persia in this time period. So what is it that we have to look for on this particular decree? Can anybody tell me? Restore and rebuild Jerusalem. What if it's talking about building the temple? Does that qualify? What if it's talking about building the king's house? Does that qualify? No, it's got to be the city, right? So let's look because there's a lot of liberal commentators that want to convince you that it's the wrong decree. So it messes up this prophecy completely. And we need to know how to respond to them when they say. And the first one they'll usually bring to you is found in Ezra. And it's Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord. Now they say, see right there, this is it. Because he's fulfilling the word of the Lord. But they miss the next words. It's the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, not Daniel. The Lord stirred up Cyrus the king. Now look down in verse 2. And Cyrus is saying, he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Skip down to verse 3. So he says, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the the God of Israel. And down at the very last part of verse 4, for the house of God is in Jerusalem. What is this decree about building the temple? That's what he sent him back. Now, They started building the temple, and they got a bit discouraged, and some things weren't going right for them. And that brings us to the next decree. This time, instead of Cyrus, it's Darius, and he granted this decree in 520 B.C. It's found in Ezra chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in rebuilding the house of God. Is that the right decree? You look down uh, at the end of that in verse 12. It says, so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem, I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out on all of you with great diligence. So they start in rebuilding the temple again. But again, they tend to get discouraged. And so there was a decree issued by Artaxerxes, who's the son of Xerxes, It was issued in 458 B.C. It's found in Ezra 7. It says, now this is a copy of the decree which Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, gave to Ezra the priest. Now look down in verse 
16, who said, with all the silver and gold you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. What's that decree speaking of? The temple. Does it meet Daniel's requirements? So we've had a decree from Cyrus. We've had a decree from Darius. And now we've had a third decree from Artaxerxes. But none of them meet the requirements of Daniel's prophecy. So there are no more decrees in the book of Ezra. But who follows Ezra? Nehemiah. Let's look in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. What is he asking to be able to do? Rebuild the city. Then the king said to me, and let's move down in verse 8. And he asked for, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress. Well, the gates are around what? City. If you have a city in the ancient Near East, and it doesn't have a wall around it with gates, what happens to it? It's, it's destroyed. Nobody's able to live there. To make beams for the gates of the city, which is which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them. So now, Nehemiah has a decree to rebuild the city. But I want you to look back again in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And what does it say? It says to rebuild, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in time of distress. Now, plaza means a big open space. Some Bibles will translate that as streets. Not the best translation. Plaza probably is the best, or town square, maybe. Moat is interesting. It can be a trench. It can be, but I think the best translation here is some scholars say, and Arnold Freudenbaum supports this concept of a water main or a water conduit so that the city can have the water. And they needed to rebuild that in Jerusalem because the enemy had destroyed it. Now, how will, what will be the situation, according to Daniel's prophecy, when this work is being done? Distress. What does that mean? Opposition. Well, if you were to read the book of Nehemiah, and especially if you were to read, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 14... We're not going to have time to read it this morning. It was built under great distress. There were people attacking. There were people threatening. There was politics. There was behind the scenes maneuvering everything they could do to stop Jerusalem from being rebuilt. It was certainly times of distress. So if that's the case, if that's the decree, what do we want to know? When was it issued? When was this decree issued? Well, there is this noted chronologist that I have talked to you about. He says, his name is Harold Honer, and he says that the decree announced by Artaxerxes was on March 5th, 444, 444 B.C. Now, how can he know that? How can he know that? Well, this guy is an eminent scholar here, Harold Honer, 
And he has a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. He has a doctorate degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. And then he went and got a PhD from Cambridge over in England. He's a pretty smart guy. And he wrote this book. And it's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Uh, To me, it is the book on this subject of the chronology of what went on in the life of Christ. And if you look at his research, as he reports in that book, he says, Artaxerxes' father, a guy named Xerxes, died on December 17th of 465 B.C. And they've been able to prove that archaeologically. Nobody disputes that. Now, Artaxerxes, his son, was prepared for his death, knew that he was dying. Xerxes would talk to him, and they would set it up. And immediately after his death, he acceded to the throne, so nobody could intervene. So in the latter part of December, Artaxerxes was firmly entrenched on the throne of the kingdom or empire of Persia. Now, let's talk about years for just a second. When you go up and you start to sit on the throne in Persia, is that considered your first year of reign? No. What is that considered? Your year of ascension or the ascension year. So here is very short. If his dad had died in January of 464, he'd had a long ascension year. And then 463 would have been his first year of his reign. Here, the father died in 465. So in 464, that was his first year. And so that's the first year. Now, when you come to Nehemiah, if you look carefully at that book, And chapter 2, it says that this happened, this event, where he granted, made this grant to Nehemiah in the 20th year of his reign. Well, that would not be for 64, it would be for 44. And then once you have that year and that time, it was also said that it was in the month of Nisan. And the month of Nisan, all decrees are set as coming out on the first of the month. So... The first of Nice in 444 B.C. would be the date of this decree. And then Horner goes back uh, using solar years and making the calculation, and it's March 5th, 444 B.C. So now, let's look at the, the verse again. If you see, it's seven weeks and 62 weeks. So 49 years and then 434 years. Now, what happened during this first 49 years? Why is there a division here? Well, I believe that's the period of time it took to build the city and to rebuild it, 49 years. You know, construction then didn't go as quickly as construction now. Of course, unless you're talking about the construction of Dallas County, which is different in that regard. They've been building on the probate courts for now four years, and it's still not anywhere close, but anyway. So you begin to see what is going on there, and the 62 years immediately follows, and we then come to this statement and this timeline. Now let's look at the first part of it. Starts out with the 49 years. Immediately thereafter, there is the 434 years. A total of that would be 483 years. How much is left? Seven. Now you can see there's a place there at the end for something else, but we're not going to get to that today. We don't have time. 
But what I want you to see is, what is the event that caused God to click the stopwatch again and stop it at 483 years? Well, the verse tells us, doesn't it? Let's look at that passage again, if we can. To rebuild a Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. When you look at that, you think, what in the heck does that mean, Messiah the Prince? Who is that Messiah the Prince? You say, well, now, Messiah, that's obviously Jesus. But Prince? No, Jesus is not the Prince. Prince, he's the king. He's not the Prince, right? So who is this talking about, Messiah the Prince? Well, Jesus is clearly Messiah, but is he the Prince? Well, who is a prince? The prince is someone who is in line to become king, right? Now, the prince has to meet certain qualifications. You can have a family with have multiple princes, but only one is the prince, right? And then the father dies. What's the next thing the prince has to do to be king? He has to be coronated, right? Now, was Jesus, has Jesus ever been coronated when he was here on earth? Now, did he suggest that he should? Yeah, he did. Let's look into that just a second. Because what are the qualifications to be king of Israel and the Messiah at the same time? What are the qualifications? Number one, you've got to be a descendant of Abraham. If you're not a descendant of Abraham, you're disqualified. Steve, I'm very sorry. You can never be king of Israel. That's okay. All right. I'm glad, I'm glad that you think that. And I hope Dana's not disappointed that she, she's not married to a king of Israel. Number two, not only that, you got to be a descendant of Isaac and Israel and Judah. There were 12 tribes. If you're an Israelite, but you're not a descendant of Judah, you can't be king and Messiah at the same time. You can't do it. Number three, you have to be a descendant of King David. If you're not a descendant of King David, you cannot be king. But there is one other criteria. Now, some will say, well, one of the criteria is you have to be born in Bethlehem. Now, it's not a, it's not a criteria to be born in Bethlehem to be a king, but it's a criteria to be born in Bethlehem to be the Messiah. And so you look at it, and you come down, and there's this special requirement to be this king. The Messiah King. It's found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, starting out. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is the prophecy. Now, when Zechariah is writing, is there any kings? No. He's, this is, he's writing during the time when, I don't know how you say it, but, but th th there is no kingdom at the time because they, they've been in captivity. And when they go back finally to Israel, they don't have a king. They're not allowed a king because Artaxerxes is the king. So, or Xerxes or Darius or Cyrus. So he said, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Now you begin to see something here. Was David endowed with salvation? No, he couldn't save himself, much less anyone else. He's a sinner. But the king who's coming will also be the Messiah because he is the Savior, the one endowed with salvation. 
Now, what does it say about him? Mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What is he saying? He's riding an animal that is unbroken. Unbroken. Now, this is the sign. What's he going to do? Now, he's on a donkey. Where will he be going? Well, he'll have to be going to Zion and Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem are the same thing. Yes, ma'am. I always wondered why all this, the Sadducees and Pharisees weren't, didn't get this. Like, I mean, to me, that would have been a blank thing that they had learned. Some of the things they had learned, I just am amazed that they didn't get Hardened hearts. Hardened hearts blind you spiritually. That's the reason. And it's sad. And we may see something about that here in just a minute to answer that question. So, did Jesus meet the qualification? Well, we do know he's from descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We do know he's from the tribe of Judah. We do know he's a direct descendant of King David, both biologically and also by adoption. So, in Matthew 21, 1 through 14, it says this. And when they had approached Jerusalem, that is Jesus and his disciples, and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Now, why is the colt with that donkey? Because she hadn't been weaned yet. Clearly, the colt hasn't been broken yet. You'll find a coat with her, untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he'll send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their colts on them, and he sat on the coats, and most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road, and the crowds going before him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the highest. Now when you see those words in all cap, what does that mean? Quotations from the Old Testament. It might be important to know where they came from. Before we answer that question, let's keep reading in verse 10. And when he had entered uh, Jerusalem, all of the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the temple of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall not be called a house of prayer. I meant my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Focus now on that name because what he's doing, he's quoting a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. If you go to Psalm 118, you will find those words there. And we, I wanted you to see Jesus completely filled this. Now, when he came up, what do we call that day? Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday here, you'll see little kids leaving the thing. And what will they have in their hand? A palm frond. And it's Palm Sunday. That was the day 
he came to Jerusalem and betrayed himself as the king or worthy to be king. I should be coronated as your king. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. Could he have come and done that on any other day than the day that he did? Now, that helps me to answer a question, a question that I've always worried about. Why is it that you see Jesus raise a little girl from, dead, from, from the dead? And what does he tell her parents? Shh, don't tell anyone about this. Over and over and over. Now, don't tell anyone about this. Why? Because it's not his time yet. What did he say to Mary at the, feast, uh, the wedding feast in Cana when she asked him to, to solve the lack of wine problem? Not my time. Exactly. Now, we're beginning to see this come through. Now, the next question is, yeah, okay, Doug, you've given us a reasonable reason for saying that he could be prince because he's coming as the prince to say, I'm the one deserving to be king. But you have to admit, the Bible never calls him prince. It always refers to him as king. Oh, you think that's true? Look in Acts chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. But you did, now Peter's talking and he's preaching. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Who was that murderer? Barabbas. But you put to death who? The king of life, right? No, that's not what it says. The prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And then again, in Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the right, his right hand as a prince and a savior. Do you see? Messiah, the prince. Messiah to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Clearly. So the question now comes, when did Jesus ride that colt of a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm? Well, you see, it's on Palm Sunday. Yeah, but what's the date? Well, Harold has done that work for us. And it is Friday, the 14th. The, wait, let me go back. How did he get it? He figured out the day of the crucifixion, which was the 14th day of Nisan in 33 AD. Now, the researcher and the way he looked through this in his book, it take me the rest of the time to explain it all. You can go look yourself if you want to. But what I'm trying to say is, it was the 14th day of Nisan, and if you figure out what that is in 33 AD, it's March 30th, 33 AD. That was the day of Palm Sunday. March 30th, 40. Now, you could be sitting there and saying, wait, we know when the 483 years started. So what difference does it make what happened on the day that it ended? It's, it's over. Question. March 5 is when it started, isn't it? March 30 is when it ended on Palm Sunday. So what difference does it make when it ends? Oh, well, I think it does. Because what did he tell us? There would be... 483 years from when it started to when it finished. And if we multiply it now, what kind of years? Jewish years, judgmental years, prophetic years. So you take 483 years, you multiply it by 360, you're going to get 173,880 days. Now, the problem is we don't use those years anymore, do we? 
we use a solar year. How many days are in a solar year? 365 plus. But that plus would be important. How much is the plus? What, how many? 365 and what? Does anybody know? Some people would say, what? Well, you're going to see in the notes, if you're quoting the notes there, somebody made a mistake. It's not 124, 125ths. What it is, it's a quarter of a year, pardon me, a quarter of a day minus a 1 125th of a day. I like to use decimals. It's 365.242.242. If you were to calculate what 0.008 means or equals, that's going to be 1 125th. If you add 0.008 to 2.42, then it would be 0.25 a quarter. So it's 242. So you take how many years it would be solar years. That's 476 years. You multiply 476 years times 365.242, and you're going to get 176,855 days. That's not 176,880 days, is it? But you got to remember, as Jerry was making the point, we started on March 5th, 444 BC, and we ended on what? March 30th. So that's 25 more days, right? From March 5th to March 30th. You had those 25 days. And what do you get? 176,880 days. You mean to say that Daniel's prophecy, according to Harold Honer, at least his research, is going to give us a start time and an end time that's 176,880 days, and he's going to hit it exactly? Question. What on here is incorrect? The incorrect number is 124 one uh, over 125. It should be a quarter of 125 minus one 125th. That's why I went decimals. 242. Did I say 176? 176 is correct. 176. Point 242, excuse me. No, it's 176 times 365.242. Yeah, then I really messed up when I put 365. I was thinking the number of days in a year, and that's wrong. Thanks, Steve. It's, uh, it's 476 times 365.242. We got, all got that on the same page? 470. All right. So 476 times 365. Most people see think it's a quarter, but it's not. Now, that number is wrong. 124 over 125 is not equal to 0.242. If you took a quarter of 125 and added one to it, and I mean one 125th, that would be the numerator. The denominator is correct. The numerator is off. I was, Jerry will tell you when I emailed these notes to him, that was uh, Saturday morning at 426. And, uh, I apologize for that mathematical error. But you begin to see the gravity 
of this. Now, let me ask you this question because I think it's an important question. If God gave us this information, would he want us to know what the exact day was? If God gave us this information, would he want people who lived before the day or at or about that day to know what the exact day was? Well, I want you to look so that there can be no question about that. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Look what Paul said. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Notice that. But when the fullness of time came. What does he mean? He has to put Jesus into the earth to be born as a, as a human being at the exact time needed to be able to have him grow up, to be able to come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on that cult. God had to time that perfectly. When the time was full, he did it. Now, did Jesus know about that day, that that was the day? Did he know? Well, look in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully and with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Now, wait. Why are they getting excited and, and shouting and celebrating as he's coming in on this unbroken cult into Jerusalem? They know exactly what day it is. They were his disciples shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. They're quoting again Psalm 118.26, a messianic psalm, and they're claiming that Jesus has the right to be claimed king. Now look. In Luke 19, verse 39, as this setup continues, and you're going to see what happens. So the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered. In other words, shut these people up. I can't believe they're saying this, that you should be king. Jesus answered, I tell you, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, look what goes on here. You know, I almost wish they'd shut up. Wouldn't it be cool to have the stones start talking? I guess it'd be kind of like a donkey talking to Balaam. But be that as it may, in Luke 19, 41, and when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now, why is he weeping over Jerusalem? Because, you see, he knows the rest of this prophecy. Starting in verse 26, what's going to happen to Jerusalem and how terrible it's going to be. But, Look what he says after, as he's weeping over this city and what's going to happen. If you had known in this day, even you, the things that would make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. If you had known this day. I mean, I want you to think about this just a second from this perspective. When the wise men come to Jerusalem, say, where is he born king of the Jews? Herod's going, oh, I don't know. And call in the Pharisees. They say to the Pharisees, these guys are here. They say they've seen the Messiah's star in the east, and they want to know where he's supposed to be born. Do you know? Well, yeah, it's Bethlehem. So what happened? King Herod stayed where he was. The Magi went to Bethlehem, and what did the Pharisees do? They went home, ate dinner, and went to bed. You mean the Messiah may have come? No, they didn't go to Jerusalem. I mean, Bethlehem to check it out. 
Why? It was hidden from their eyes. Do you see that in this, in this verse right here? It was, now, you, now they have been hidden from your eyes. You go to verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about what's going to go on in Daniel chapter 9. But specifically, what is he talking about? What year? 40 A.D. The Romans came. And they laid siege to Jerusalem. And they built a barricade all around it so that no one could escape. And they completely leveled the city. Completely leveled the temple. Did I say 40? 70. I'm sorry. 70 A.D. I'm glad you, you fixed that. Now, it's interesting. Why did the Romans, especially in the temple, tear down every stone? Gold. You see, the temple caught on fire. And the gold melted. It got so hot. And it rolled and it ran down between. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll see a lot. Of, they didn't use a lot of mortar. The stones were so heavy, there was no way they're going to move. They had to put little lead runners under it to be able to push them in. And so they had to get all those stones out because all the gold ran down into those crevices. And they wanted the gold. Not one stone was left on another. Now, that's about Jerusalem. And it, what does it say? They will level you and your children within you. Do you know what the Roman... This is kind of gross, I guess, for Sunday morning. But the truth and the fact is, when they breached the walls to Jerusalem and the Roman soldiers were in there, if a Jewish woman was found pregnant cut open her abdomen, pull out her fetus, and strangle it before her eyes before they killed her. That's enough to make Jesus cry. It ought to be enough to make us cry. Except we do the same thing, just not as bloody. But anyway, you look at that, and what does it say? Why is it that this happened to them? And they will not leave you, leave in you one stone to another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Your king came and you refused to recognize him. You rejected him. You look in John 12, 37. The nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah and king. Again, in Matthew, this is in preparation for this event. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up, to, to, came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But here's what he replied to them. When it is evening, you say it will be, a fair, be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? You don't know. They had better access to the information about when things happened than we did, than we do. They couldn't discern it. Let's look again at a, at a question here. In Matthew 2, 1 and 2, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi came from the east, uh, and they arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. First question, how did they know about a star? Well, the first verse I want you to look at is Daniel 2.48. Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and 
chief prefect of all wise men in Babylon. Who are wise men? Magi. Do you see that? He's now the run. So what is he going to do? Establish a library? What would be in that library? Well, his book would end up in that library, wouldn't it? But also the first five books of the Bible, certainly they would be there. The prophecy of Jeremiah and Isaiah, they would be there. And you start thinking about all these books, many of the Psalms that were written would be there. Now, look at this. Let's look over in Numbers 24. This is the prophecy of Balaam. Let me explain to you again who Balaam was. Balaam was a prophet well known at the time that the Jewish people were leaving the wilderness, coming up to the promised land. And Balak, one of the kings of the lands they were going to go through, said, we've got to do something. These Jews are mightier than us. They'll just wipe us out. Let's hire Balaam to come in and curse them and prophesy against them. And so Balaam said, I'll take that money. And he starts uh, coming up and he gets up and he tries to prophesy and curse them. And all that can come out of his mouth is blessings. And he tried for seven times to do it. And every time he failed. And the fourth time is recorded in Numbers, or a portion of it in Numbers 24, 17. And he talks about someone coming from Israel. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. What is he saying? A star, special one, anointed by God, is being sent. The star of the morning. And he'll have a scepter. What does that mean? King. Messiah and king. That's what Balaam is prophesying. Where did Balaam come from that he would know these kinds of things? In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 34, pardon me, verse 3 and 4, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Now notice that just a second. To curse you. Where did he come from? Mesopotamia. Where are his prophecies going to be preserved? Mesopotamia. Where is Daniel living at the time when he's writing this book? Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That is where all this has come from. And these people over there, the Magi, they knew what day it was. You see, they knew, gee, it's going to happen pretty soon because we've counted these days and the time's almost up, 883 of our years. And when do you think, all we got to figure out is when he's going to be born. Oh, the star. Look at this star. We've never seen this star before. We've got to go. Now, they're going to travel 350 miles on a whim? No, they were certain what was going to happen. That's why they showed up there. And that's why they found it. Now, how do you know when to look? Because they also knew Daniel 9, 24, and 25. Now, let's look one more time before we finish today. Back in Daniel chapter 9. I want to read, starting in verse 25, 
So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. What does that mean? First, cut off. I want you to think about this. But basically, it's going to mean killed. And have nothing, they will not accept him as their Messiah and King. Now, God takes his thumb and pushes that stopwatch on Palm Sunday, and it stops. We are in a pause now. This pause would probably have questions to Daniel. Well, what are we doing with a pause? You're going to get, when we get to chapter 12, Daniel's going to start asking, well, what about this? What about, what, what do, I have these questions. And he's going to say, go your way, Daniel. It's not for you to understand right now. We are now in a much better position to understand this whole prophecy than the guy who wrote it. Mark? Yeah, a number of years ago, we went through a deal that had the statistical probability of Jesus being the Messiah. And all these benchmarks that he had to accomplish to become the Messiah is impossible. Okay, so we have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than, than Jesus being the Messiah. And that most of the things is he can't control. He can't control his, where he's descended of or where he's born. Can't do it. But now... Here's, a, here's what I want you to think about. What would have happened if when he came to Jerusalem that day, they just said, yes, you deserve to be king. We're naming you as king. What would have happened? No right. He would have died. He would have risen again on the third day, and his kingdom would have started. Now, that's what the disciples thought. They said, after he'd risen and spent the time, and he goes, takes them over to the Mount of Olives, and they said, well, are you going to start the kingdom? Is the kingdom coming? It's not for you to know. Here's what you to do. You are to return to Jerusalem and wait. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. And you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. That was his last instruction to them. Now, the question is, is that instruction to us. Now think about that. Was that an instruction to, to Israel or was that an instruction to the church? You see, the pause gave rise to the church. We are the church. Those are our instructions. Now I can tell you, and, and I have told the Lord a number of times, why do I have to be the example? Friday, I had to leave work early because a guy was coming over to do our floors. We had some scratches on the floors that movers had caused, and we had to, he had to fix those. And I thought, perfect time for me to be, I had to be at the house, but I can study and get ready for this lesson. And he doesn't need my supervision. And then he finishes, and he comes back in, well, Mr. Brady, I finished. And as he says, I finished, he sits down in the chair in front of my desk. And he wants to talk. And I said, Lord, you know, I'm doing here what you want me to be doing is preparing this lesson. And then he had to say something to me. No, you're not doing what I want you doing. So the guy asked me, 
He said, what line of work are you in? I said, well, I'm an attorney. Well, what kind of practice? I said, I do business law, and then I do estate planning and probate. In fact, have you got yourself ready with your will and everything so that you are prepared if something were to happen to you? Yes, I have. I got that all taken care of. And I said, okay, have you got yourself ready for after you die? It's me. Well, wait, what do you mean? I said, after you die, are you got everything prepared? Oh, that, yeah, I've been good. I've been living a good life. And I said, okay, so when you get up to heaven and God asks you, why should I let you in? What are you going to say to him? And he said to me, well, because, you know, really compared to everybody else I know, I've, I've lived pretty well. I've done the right thing. I try to help people. And he told me a bunch of people he'd helped. And I said, so you think you can earn your way into heaven? Is that what you're telling me? He says, you can't. I said, well, let's look what God said. And we went over Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that anybody would boast. You can't earn your way into heaven. And in fact, the problem is you're a sinner. Now, yeah, you may not have sinned as much as some other people you know. But let me ask you, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? How many things do you have to steal to be a thief? And then I told him, here's the answer. And I took him to John 1.12. We talked about receiving Christ. And I asked him, Jerry, you want to do that? He said, yeah, I do. And so he left the child of God. I was not planning to do that. I didn't want to do that because I had a lesson to prepare. But you see, we need to be asking God, give me the opportunity to obey you. Not, not give me the Reveal the opportunities you are giving to me to be obedient to you. Because what Jesus left was saying, you shall be my witnesses. Now, is there any question whether or not you're going to be his witnesses? No. The only question is, what kind of witness will you be? Let's close the word of prayer. And Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend here today. I thank you for working in our hearts. I thank you for this wonderful prophecy of Daniel. Help us to understand that the most intriguing portions of this prophecy are yet to come and that you are going to show us these things that help us to realize this. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us to understand that you are going to provide us opportunities to be obedient with you and to share our faith. Help us to be prepared and help us to say yes when you call our name. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. 